He was on the run when he got the news. He was running from his best friend's dad, of all people. He'd been running, and, and this was a man he had dined with, a man he had admired, a man he'd look up to, a man he'd played private concerts for. But for the past 12 years, he'd been running. For 12 long, hard years, he'd been forced to spend his nights up in the mountains, hidden away in caves. In fact, he had to run into a foreign country, and that's where he was when he got the news. He was in a foreign country behind enemy lines, the country at war with his cherished homeland, when he finally got the news that King Saul was dead, that his best friend Jonathan was dead, that all of Saul's sons, they had all died in battle. They were all dead. You might have expected David to celebrate The running could stop now. He could go home. He could be reunited with family. But David, he didn't celebrate Saul's death. In fact, earlier, twice, David, he had the opportunity himself to kill Saul, but he would not raise the sword against God's anointed. That's what David said. And so when Saul died, he didn't celebrate. In fact, he mourned. He cried, and as he was crying and mourning, he wrote a song to eulogize Saul and Jonathan. And in that song, he repeated three lines. He repeated one line three times. Over and over and over again, he wrote, How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. Fast forward about 20 years. David is now around 50. He's now king over Israel. And he was a good king. I mean, if there was a right direction, wrong direction poll at that time, he's getting off the chart marks. Everybody is saying that Israel's on the right track. I mean, he was expanding her borders. The country was unified. David had led well in battle. The economy, it was booming. It was a great time to be an Israelite. I mean, if there were like personal approval ratings, David, he's getting off the chart. Marks, everybody loves David. He's this unifier who had led the country with integrity and with character. But David was not without his weaknesses. His weaknesses, they'd been present before. They weren't a surprise. They were exposed. You could see it. He was only supposed to have one wife. But you go through and you look, and he was married to Michael and Akinoam and Abigail and Maacah and Haggith and Abital and Eglah. And that doesn't even mention his concubines. Yeah, he had his weaknesses. And now 20 years later, after he had written that song about Saul and Jonathan, how the mighty have fallen how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. I wonder if that lyric echoed in his mind. Because then it happened. In the springtime, when the flowers were blooming and that fresh aroma was in the air of new life and all the kings, they were all off at war with their armies. But David, on the advice of counsel, he didn't go to war he stayed behind. Before, he had crafted strategic plans for his military battles. 
But on this lonely night, high up on this rooftop in the city, there was no battle plan. He had won in politics, he had won in war, he had won in business, he had won the heart of a country because he had a heart after God. But on this lonely night, when his eyes spotted Bathsheba, he lost the battle for purity. Soon after leaving Bathsheba, and Bathsheba goes away, and then David gets a note some days later, just three words from Bathsheba. I am pregnant. And that was the time, if not before, that was the time for David to step up and for him to say, hey, I have sinned, I've messed up, I've done wrong. But he didn't. Instead, he crafts a plan and he arranges for the murder of Uriah, that he would be sent to a part of the battlefield that he would surely be killed. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. I wonder if those words kept David up at night. As he went about his business the next day, you can imagine the lump in his throat as he walked the palace that next day. Those must have been some dark, lonely hallways. Maybe you've bought the lie that our culture has been peddling, that it's just experimentation. Maybe you've bought the lie that on what's on TV that, hey, it's, it's an affair clothed in mystery and adventure. David would tell you it's not experimentation, it's fornication. It's, it's not an affair clothed in mystery and adventure. It's adultery clothed in shame and guilt. Maybe you can't personally identify with David. Maybe you're not an adulterer or a murderer, but you still know the lump in your chest. You still know the dark, lonely hallways of life. You still know the pain of a restless night's sleep due to a guilty conscience. This this psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 51, you can go ahead and turn there. It's not a psalm just about David. It's a psalm for all of us. Psalm 51, the early church called it the Psalm of Psalms. It's a psalm of David crying out to God, singing a song of restoration. And we've all been there. We all have seasons of our life where we need to be restored, where we're just confronted with our sin, and we know, hey, I need to be restored to this proper relationship with God again. Whether you sin and it seems so big and so insurmountable, or maybe it seems small, this is a great song to sing. It's a song of restoration. For David, about a year has passed since his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And I'm sure it was a long year. I'm sure David gladly would have exchanged his mansion for another night in the mountains. I'm sure David gladly would have traded his place in the palace just to go back to the caves. It was a long, hard, difficult year. And then Nathan came. 
He was sent by God, and Nathan comes, and and he tells David this story about a rich man who has everything and a poor man who has next to nothing and how the rich man stole from the poor man. And David is outraged. Who would do such a thing? That is awful. And then David could almost feel it as Nathan pointed to him, and it was like his finger went right into his sternum, and he said, you are the man. And at that moment, David simply said, I have sinned. Now make no mistake about it. Those words should have left his mouth months before. But when they came, they came honestly and they came humbly. He didn't start wagging his fingers saying, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. No, he just admitted it honestly and truthfully. There were no excuses, no justifications. It was just there. The simple, unpleasant, heartbreaking truth, I have sinned. And on the heels of this confrontation by Nathan, the brokenhearted, And yet at the same time, the forgiven David writes Psalm 51. Psalm 51, it's a song of restoration. Let's go ahead and begin with the first two verses. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In this psalm, this this is the first psalm where David addresses God as Elohim. Usually he refers to God as Yahweh, but Elohim, it's a more formal word for God. It's a more distant form for God. It, 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 it kind of demonstrates just how far David might have felt from God at this point of time. He, he didn't feel close like Yahweh, Lord. No, he's distant. This mighty God far from me. David knew his sin. It, it, it was ever before him. It was keeping him up at night. And he knew he, he didn't deserve God's forgiveness. He, he knew he could never earn it. He knew he couldn't go back and just make these wrongs right. I can't put these pieces back together again. This is broken. I, I can't bring Uriah back to life. I can't reunite Bathsheba with her husband. This is broken. D- David needed a total pardon, and he knew it. And he asked God, he says, wipe away my rebellious acts, wash away his wrongdoing, cleanse me from my sin. Three times he uses it, he repeats it over and over, blot out, wash away, cleanse. So during during those times, a person's actions, they were often identified with the type of clothing that they would wear. And David, as he's looking at it, he feels like he's just clothed in these robes which are full of moral filth and just mud has been flung on him and, and it's uncomfortable. It's, it's ugly. He's supposed to be the leader of Israel, this model of integrity for the people, and he feels the burden of a heavy heart. The strain of a guilty conscience. He, he feels like that dirty garment, totally unfit to worship. This perfect, this unstained God of the universe. In this section, you, D- David, it, it reveals just the ugliness of sin. You go through it and you read it and it jumps out at you that sin is rebellion. 
It is evil. That sin is living a lie. It, it separates. It is the height of ingratitude. It didn't just suddenly happen. David just didn't suddenly end up with Bathsheba. It was a series of choices. The one choice after another, it led to this. It was a series of sinful choices. He had been weakened by all these wives and concubines that he was taking. He should have been off at war like all the other kings. But no, he stayed behind. And he went up, and and as you read the Psalms, you, you get the idea that David's life is usually a life spent praying to God. Morning, noon, and night, he prays to God, but not on this night. On this night, he's up on the rooftops, and he's surveying, and then he sees Bathsheba. She's complicit in this, you know. She's, she wasn't raped. She knew that she was in plain sight. She knew that she could be seen. David doesn't point to any of that, though. Because when it hits home, he just knows this sin is horrible. It's abominable. And to think of sin as anything less, totally underestimates the weight of sin, the penalty of sin, what our sin deserves, the desperate need to be rid of this defilement, to to think of sin as anything less, backs you, takes you off of your guard to be looking out for it, to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to survive its attacks. It causes you to feel this ingratitude for what God has done, to not even to think about what he has done because sin is this evil. It is this ugly. It is this nasty. And it infects all of us. It is hereditary and it is voluntary. We're all born sinners, and we all choose sin. Like David, we're all covered in guilt and shame. And David, he feels the weight of it all, and he appeals to God's mercy. He appeals to God's steadfast love. He appeals to his abundant mercy three times at the beginning. You have this appeal, and then three times this wash away, cleanse. He, he rightly recognizes the filth of his sin, the overwhelming guilt and shame, and at the same time, his utter uselessness to do anything about it. He cannot restore himself. He has come to his end and he can't make it right. Look at the next several verses, verses three through six. David writes, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Just just look at the pronouns at the the beginning of that stanza again, and, and allow the weight of them just to hit home for a moment. It says, I know my transgressions, my sin, I sinned. I imagine every time he looked in the mirror that he knew I'm just living a lie. 
he couldn't escape it. He doesn't even bother trying to, to really, he doesn't try to list out his good works and say, hey, maybe this will kind of offset some of that bad. I mean, look how I've led Israel. Look at all we've accomplished. There's some good going on here. He doesn't bother with any of that. He didn't try to shift the blame. He doesn't, he doesn't try to implicate Bathsheba at all. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. This personal confession. It almost seemed, as I was reading it over and over again this week, it almost seemed louder and louder every time I read it that you know, he could have tried to lie to himself, and sometimes we do that. He could have tried to deceive other people and make them think it didn't happen. He did that, right? And sometimes we do that too. He tried to keep it secret, but it comes out. And even if it doesn't come out, he would have known. He always would have known. True repentance is not a dead knowledge that sin has been committed. True repentance is this living, never at rest, painful consciousness of it until you have been restored in proper fellowship with God. It it ought to keep you up at night. If it does, that's good. That's a mark of the Holy Spirit in your life. It ought to bother you to look in the mirror. It ought to cause you just to, to keep you up, just to remind you to play through it in your mind. That's good. That's the Holy Spirit at work in your life telling you just spit it out already. Just be honest. Just go to those you've wronged. Tell it truthfully. Tell it honestly. Don't hold it back. But we look at this and we ask, how does that happen? How does a man like David, David of all people, fall like this? So spectacularly, so awfully, so horribly. How does a man like, damn, did he just start hating God? That's not it at all. Because he, as he looked from his palace and he spotted Bathsheba, as he put the plan in motion, as he sent for her and he had his servant usher her into his quarters, as, as she went back home and then he got the notice, he made the plans then to have Uriah killed, as he went through all of this scheming and scheming. And he had to go through a lot of scheming with Uriah because he was a noble man of character. And it wasn't just Uriah. He sent out other soldiers with Uriah who also lost their lives so that David could be sure that Uriah was dead. I don't think it was David just started hating God. He wasn't duped into just hating God. He got caught up in the moment. He was just flying by the seat of his pants. The the, the moment became so big and in that moment of passion and in that moment of worry and in all these moments of life, he's just, how do I get out of this mess? And instead of just being honest and truthful, he digs himself deeper and deeper and deeper. It's not that he hated God. It's almost even worse than that. I think he kind of forgot about him. I, I think he kind of forgot that God was even there. But here's the great thing. Even when we forget about God, God never 
forgets about us. He sent his son Jesus so that we can be restored, so that we can be brought back, so that what we've done no longer has to define who we are. But restoration requires true repentance. Restoration requires true repentance. David says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And we may look at it and say, well, surely it was more than just God he sinned against. I mean, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against those other soldiers. He sinned against his servants who he's, who he's kind of brought along in his plan. Surely it's not just God that he sinned against. No, this is a statement of perspective where he's looking at it and he says, ultimately, God, you're the one who set the standard. You're the one who created me and put all this into place. And ultimately, ultimately, I have sinned against you and you only. Nathan tells God that, or tells David that, David, you despised God's word when you sinned. That he set the standard, that that he's called you, he's given you life, he's told you how to live, and you've despised his word, that in choosing sin, You've despised God's word. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't make it anything less than it is, David. This is what you've done. In this stanza, David, he's pointing out this striking difference between God and himself. The stanza begins with his sin and how ugly and how vile and how nasty it is and how it clings to him and haunts him everywhere he goes. And then it ends as this passage develops in God's moral superiority. That he is above reproach, that his word is always truth, that he is a just judge, a worthy judge. And in the middle, David does something interesting. He brings out this spiritual ultrasound machine. He says, hey, before I was born, I inherited the sin of my mother. Before ultrasounds were even dreamt about, David says, I inherited this sin in the womb. See, isn't it interesting, before even ultrasounds, David realizes that he wasn't just a piece of fetal tissue in his mother's womb, that even in the womb, he was a spiritual being. He was a spiritual being already stained by sin in the womb. He understands this. And now he's facing it. He's coming face to face with his sin. He's saying, I was a, sin, a sinner by birth, and I'm a sinner by choice. I inherited it, and I chose it. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He had the moral conscience of right and wrong. He knew God's word. But his actions revealed that at least in that moment, he despised it. He chose sin. And so do we all. The broken, humble, Repentant songwriter continues. Look at verses 7 through 12. David writes, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We've all seen the commercials, haven't we, of uh, a boy, he's, he's in a bright white shirt. It looks like a brand new shirt. And he goes out and he, he leaves the house and he, and he goes and he starts playing football or rugby or soccer or some sport. And it's always like a rainy, muddy kind of a day. And he falls on the ground and he gets grass stains and mud stains. And he comes back home and, and he takes off his shirt and he hands his mom this shirt that before was, it looked brand new, like super white, clean. And he hands it back to her with all stained up. And she smiles a big smile and she takes it just happily. And we all know that's a lie because that doesn't work like that. That if you go out and you wear this brand new shirt and you stain it all up, mom's not patting you on the back saying, oh, thank you so much. She's saying, what are you doing? Why didn't you wear your gym clothes? But in the commercials, you know, mama takes it and she throws it in the washing machine and throws in this miracle detergent and it comes back out just as white as before. David gets it and we all get it. We've been stained by sin a stain so deep that it's just not a mark on your clothes, that our soul, our flesh have been stained by sin. And we can hunt up and down every aisle of the grocery store, but there's no miracle detergent that's going to get it out. It doesn't matter how hard you wash it. It doesn't matter how hard you scrub it. It doesn't matter how long you take. It's not getting out. In this passage, David, he appeals to the sacrificial system that God has put in place where a priest would sprinkle hyssop, the blood of an animal being sacrificed in order to atone for sin, in order to make things right. It foreshadows the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ where he poured out his blood for us to cleanse us, to, to, to make us new. White as snow, and this is the hope that we appeal to. Wash me in your blood, cleanse me. I'll be whiter than snow. And as David trusts God, he makes this incredibly insightful statement. He says, God created me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Because he realizes, hey, in order to live this life that you've called me to live, I can't do it on my own. That I am incapable to walk in this grace the way I ought. That, that I need the power of your Holy Spirit to, to live the life you've called me to live. Renew that spirit within me. He, he reaches the conclusion that we all must reach as a transformed people that I am unable to do this by myself that I am unable to live the life God has called me to live by myself. In fact, those areas where you think, oh, I'd never fall there. 
I'm, I'm above that. I surely would never sin like that. It is precisely those areas that you are most vulnerable because you think you've got it. We don't got it. We are in constant need of God for every avenue of our life. It is a total, complete dependence. I need the Holy Spirit to keep from quitting and just doing my own thing, and I need the Holy Spirit to help me choose the paths of righteousness that I would walk in them. Before this ugly sin, David knew joy. He knew the joy that comes with salvation, and he wants it back. This is what he's singing now. I I want the joy of my salvation returned. I want to be able to look in the mirror again and and not just feel shame and guilt. I want want to be able to lay my head on the pillow again and just sleep a sound sleep at night. I want to be able to walk through the palace hallways and them not just seem dark and distant. I, I want my life back. I want to feel whole again. I want to enjoy the worship with God's people again. He's ready for the lies to stop, for the secrecy to end. He wants the joy to return. Restoration returns joy. It's a great truth of God that restoration returns joy, that God doesn't just accept us back as servants. He's adopted us into his family. Despite all David's done, despite all the pain that he's brought upon himself and that he's brought upon others, David was confident that God could return to to him that joy, the joy that he's lost, that he could smile a real smile again, that he could laugh a real laugh again, that he didn't have to fake it any longer, that this could all be returned, that what he did in the past did not have to define who he would be in the future, that God returns, restores joy. He believed it. Now, now in saying all that, you, you must also know the backstory of David's life. That when David admitted his sin honestly and truthfully, Nathan told him, you are forgiven. The joy could return. That he was forgiven, fully forgiven, totally forgiven. His sin would not be held against him. But at the same time, Nathan also said, you are forgiven. However, your son, the, the boy that you were to have with Bathsheba, He's going to die. He was forgiven. He was cleansed. His joy was restored. But there were still consequences. Those consequences, they didn't just affect David. They affected others. David's sin had deep, lasting consequences for others on earth. Hosea prophesied and said it, if you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. And that's a general theme found throughout scripture, this theme of sowing and reaping. And some of you right now, you may be caught up in somebody else's whirlwind. You may be experiencing consequences that you didn't create, that you didn't choose, that you didn't want. And you need to know that even in those consequences, that God is still worthy of worship. That God's word is still true, that he is still reliable, that he is still trustworthy, that even in the whirlwind that somehow he's taking all of that and he's making it good 
that he does somehow work all things together for our good. Even though sometimes we can't even make it out and see it and understand it, we trust that somehow he is turning it all good. We trust that he is near the brokenhearted. This is the promise of our God, even if you're in somebody else's whirlwind. And some of you, you've created your own whirlwind and you're just living the consequences of your own bad decisions. Forgiveness does not mean the absence of consequences. It doesn't mean that at all. That's a faulty understanding of forgiveness. You can break your arm while you sin. You can be forgiven of your sin. It does not mean that your arm is instantly healed. We get it that way, but sometimes we fail to understand the emotional consequences, other physical consequences of sin. For David, his sin, you trace the rest of his life and you look, he, his joy was restored. He was forgiven, fully forgiven. But you look at his family. He had a dysfunctional family. It's a family none of us would want. When you look at the evil that happened there and it was because of the choices that David made. And then he, he repped the whirlwind of those choices. The ultimate consequence of eternal death and eternal separation, hey, that was bought and paid for. He was restored to a proper relationship with God where he could worship again, and that was good. But the consequences were there. In fact, they'll always be there. We'll always be reminded of our sin. Has it ever occurred to you that there is something man-made in heaven? Have you ever thought about that? that? That Maybe you're even protesting right now, saying, come on, Steve, there's nothing man-made in heaven. But I want you to think about it for a moment. There is something man-made in heaven, even in that perfect heaven where God went ahead, Jesus went ahead to, to create this place for us. This perfect heaven. Even there, there's something man-made. See, Revelation, it it talks about the lamb standing as though he had been slain. A permanent reminder of the consequence of our sin and the grace of our Lord are the scars on Jesus. Always there. We put them there. Our sin is so gross is so vile, is so disgusting. It it deserves an eternal consequence. Instead, we live with temporary consequences now. And they remind us of our continued need for God. And the overwhelming grace that he would wash us clean, that he would make us fit for heaven And that in heaven, he will bear the scars. And we bear his righteousness. And see, that realization, even in the midst of the whirlwind, it can bring joy. I want to read the final section with you, verses 13 through 19. It says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. 
for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Joy's return to David. The punishment for adultery was stoning. The punishment for murder was stoning. What David did deserved. He deserved to be stoned to death. He deserved capital punishment according to the law. Yet he's allowed to live, and more than just simply live, he's allowed to have his joy return for him to praise God again. And now from the lips of the same man who sent for Bathsheba, from the lips of the same man who ordered that Uriah needed to be murdered, this same man who was scheming, now from the lips of this man comes this proclamation of who God is and the type of offering that God accepts. See, restoration, it results in proclamation. This this, this is where it leads. The restoration with God and being brought back into proper fellowship with God, it results in a proclamation of who God is and the goodness of our God and the grace of our God and even teaching about the character of our God. David now teaches his people what an appropriate sacrifice consists of. Even back in the Old Testament, David says, hey, a a proper sacrifice is not merely this burnt offering. A proper sacrifice, even in the Old Testament, got to the heart of who you are, that you must be broken. That you must understand that I bring nothing to the table, that humbly before God I offer this sacrifice, that if it's done with any other kind of heart, even in the Old Testament, it was an unacceptable sacrifice. And now as New Testament believers, our bodies are to be living sacrifices, that the totality of our lives are to be lived out in humility and utter dependence upon God, that he would empower us for every avenue of our life. After all that David had been through, and, and, and just think of this for a moment, it is after David sinned with Bathsheba, it is after David sinned in ordering Uriah's demise, it is also after David had been restored, after all of this is when God would say, David, you are a man after my own heart. That he could have done all that and God would still say, David, you're a man after my own heart. Make no mistake about it, Psalm 51 is not just about David. It's written for you and me. It's it's a reminder of what restoration looks like and how we all need it. I mean, if David could fall, a man after God's own heart, a mighty David, even today, you go, you ask is any Israelite, any faithful Israelite, hey, who's the best king in the history of Israel? Even today, they would all tell you, David. I mean, it's their city, right? The, the city of David. It's represented on their flag. Anyone would still tell you the best king we've ever had is David. He's a man better than any of us. And yet he fell terribly. And it resulted in awful consequences. If he could fall so spectacularly, make no mistake about it, so can we. 
And so the refrain repeats itself again and again and again throughout human history, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. And now as we survey the landscape, there is only one who is mighty left standing. And he has come to us when we were in the pit of our sin, when we were enemies of God, when we were clothed and dressed in these filthy robes, just covered in the grossness of our sin, that it is at that moment that Jesus came to us, that he didn't turn away from our sin. He ran to us in the midst of our sin and he took it upon himself and he paid the penalty for our sins so that God doesn't have to look on it any longer, so that it can be removed from us as far as the east is from the west, so that from God's perspective, it can be forgotten forever so that we can be forgiven forever, so that what we've done does not have to define who we are. See, this is the joy of being restored. And now we, those who have been transformed, the restored, we get to go and we get to proclaim the goodness of this great God. This is a wonderful song to sing whenever you sin, because it is a song of restoration, of being made right with the perfect God of the universe.